So we could see a V pattern. There was an accelerant. Okay, so we could see a V pattern where that fire started. And I mean, it was so pronounced. And there was nothing there that would start that fire naturally. When a serious crime is committed in a small town, a handful of detectives are charged with solving the case. I'm Yardley, and I'm fascinated by these stories. So I invited my friends, Detectives Dan and Dave, to help me gather the best true crime cases from around the country and have the men and women who investigated them tell us how it happened. I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. We're identical twins from small town USA. Dave investigated sex crimes and crimes against children. He's now a patrol sergeant at his police department. Dan investigated violent crimes. He's now retired. Together, we have more than two decades experience and have worked hundreds of cases. We've altered names, places, relationships, and certain details in these cases to maintain the privacy of the victims and their families. So we ask you to join us in protecting their true identities as well as the locations of these crimes out of respect for everyone involved. Thank you. Today on Small Town Dicks, we have the usual suspects. We have Detective Dan. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. And we have Detective Dave. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. And we are so pleased to welcome a new guest to the podcast, retired Detective Dawn. Hi. Hi. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. We're thrilled. So, Dawn, you're not just a detective. You were also a fire and arson investigator at your agency. That's right. And you've brought us a really interesting case about an arsonist in your town. So tell us how this case came to you. So because I'm a fire and arson investigator, I was called about three o'clock in the morning when our local high school was burning to the ground. The gym in the cafeteria area was burning to the ground. And some of our patrol officers had heard the dispatch of the fire department going to a fire and they were asking for traffic control. And so they responded and... The entire gym is just going up in flames. And one of those patrol officers, Officer Steve, happened to see a Jeep that was pretty unique in that it had a black rack on top and some black aftermarket stuff on it and saw it in the area. And when it appeared that that Jeep saw his patrol car, it flipped a UE really fast, but not flipping a UE like oh, I can't go down the street. More like, I need to get the hell out of here. So he flipped a Yui. Fortunately, Officer Steve got a license plate on it. Go, Officer Steve. Right? So we had that license plate. We also had a call that night about a white Jeep that had run into a camper that was on a foundation like cement blocks on the side of the road, run into it. And they had recognized the white Jeep as belonging to a guy who lived in the area who starts fires. So now we had a second spotting of him. What's his name? Trent. Did Trent in his Jeep try to ram the camper? I think he was just driving with his head inserted, right? And didn't even know. (laughs) (laughs) But he just wasn't paying attention. It's not like he rammed into it. He just like sideswiped it. And it was on cement blocks. So it kind of comes off their foundation or off those cement blocks the people who that camper belonged to heard it and gave chase. But Trent kept going. So then for some reason, he continues on. He goes to the school. He rams into all of the gates. 
and there's pieces of vehicle kind of laying about at these gates that have been run into. So we had all of that damage. And then he decides that it's time to start a fire. So he drives into the parking lot and he sets the fire. And then we also had another fire about two blocks, two and a half blocks from the school in which a propane tank on a travel trailer that was parked in a driveway of a residence was set on fire. And one of our patrol officers is driving along and sees this propane tank on fire. And he's like, holy crap, I better tell the owners of this house. And he runs up to the front door. He knock, knock, knocks. You can hear it even. And they open the door. He gets in. And just as he gets in, that propane tank explodes. The explosion was so large that it kind of knocked the house kind of not off the foundation, but moved it on the foundation, breaking all those front windows, total loss on the owner's vehicle next to it, total loss on the travel trailer, total loss on the garage of their house. And shrapnel from that propane tank ended up all the way down the block, like seven houses down. There was pieces of it. So we were busy trying to investigate all of these different things that were happening and also find the white Jeep. Can I ask you a question? Is Trent harassing the people in the trailer first before he sets their propane tank on fire? He doesn't know any of these people. Right. So what's he doing at the trailer? Well, when he's at the travel trailer, he's just setting the fire. I think he saw something that would burn. There's no reason. He has no reason. It's just random. He goes, this is an opportunity. Yes. And did you run the license plate and find out who the Jeep belonged to? Yeah, it ended up belonging to Trent. And when we ran Trent... We ended up finding that he lived in the area and was on probation for arson. Okay. Wow, things are happening really quickly here. So let me just break it down again, if you don't mind, and then you tell me if I got it right. Mm -hmm. All right. Trent rams a camper with his white Jeep that has aftermarket bling on it. The owner of that camper tries to chase Trent down, but Trent gets away. Trent then drives to a school nearby... He goes right through the gates, he damages his Jeep, and even leaves little bits of the Jeep on the gate, which you guys find later. Trent then sets fire to the school gym and cafeteria. After that, he drives away, and a few blocks later, he sees a propane tank near a travel trailer that's parked in a stranger's driveway. An alert patrol officer sees Trent driving erratically after that, That officer gets Trent's license plate off the Jeep, and that's how you know it's Trent that you're looking for. Is that accurate, sort of? Yep, that's right. Phew. And how old is Trent? He's about 27. Okay. Yeah. So what's interesting about this case to me, well, number one, Trent starts this fire, and when we pick him up, we're bringing in evidence at the same time. And so our evidence is in the form of video evidence. So there's some neighbors in the area that have surveillance cameras in their front yard. And so we're seeing the Jeep drive by and then we'll see the Jeep on another street surrounding it. And so we're kind of watching his progress. And so when he started the fire, he started it next to the building in some milk crates, some of those plastic milk crates. This is at the school? At the school. So it's interesting. Now the fire has brought the school all the way to the ground. Like there's nothing else standing. And... What Trent doesn't know is that there is surveillance cameras and computers right there below where he started the fire, right? But they've been doused with thousands and thousands of gallons of water. So I know that we might have something, 
but I'm not going to have it right away because it has to be cleaned. That hard drive has to be cleaned. And so he goes home and he goes to bed, sleeps through it. Was Trent spotted by that officer? And obviously he does this U-turn, this abrupt U-turn, and it wasn't you know, wrong turn, you turn. It was, I got to get the hell out of here. Right. Do you think that scared him to go, basically, I'm going to go home now because I'm not going to press my luck? I do. I think that it did scare him to go home. And the other interesting thing was he and his roommate lived with the roommate's mom and stepdad. And so mom wakes up the roommate and is like, look how that Jeep is parked out front, right? Like, I'm setting down the law now. Whatever Trent did, he hurried up, parked it, got in, and went to bed. Like, I'm just going to go to sleep. Like, that's going to make it all go away. I just wonder how many other fires would have happened out there had there not been a quick response, both by law enforcement and the firefighters, right? So you don't even pick Trent up until the next day. Right. Little did we know that the white Jeep had left with Trent's roommate to go to work. So we weren't going to find it during the day. So Trent's roommate borrowed the white Jeep to go to work while Trent is in the house sleeping off his crimes. Yes. So you guys just camped out in his neighborhood doing surveillance, waiting for him to show up, either the Jeep or you get a visual on him, the person. Right. He's walking down the street. And so we stopped Trent for the hit and run on that camper, right? Okay. And so he's walking near his residence and you guys just swoop on him? Right. Trent actually walked out his door and he walked just like out into the front yard and the patrol officer saw him and that's when he stopped him. And Trent has no idea why the police would want to talk to him? No. I don't know why you want to talk to me, but yes, I will come with you and see what you know. Right. Uh Right. (laughs) So I invite Trent to come back to my detective vehicle and he comes back to the detective vehicle and we were able to talk. And he, he says that he didn't do it. No, I didn't do it. I wouldn't start a fire after I got arrested for those first fires. I learned my lesson. I would never, wasn't there, didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Right. What does he say is his alibi? He was driving around. It was three o'clock in the morning and he needed to get a cell phone at the local 24-hour super mart. You know what I mean? But then when he drove over there, he realized all oh, those phones were prepaids. So he decided not to. And then he got lost coming home. In his small town. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Trent said he got lost and had to drive around. And then he admitted to turning around in the high school parking lot. So he turned around, but Trent didn't run into anything until we were able to show him a piece of that grill on his headlight and how it matched. And then he's like, oh, well, I might have touched it. So you've got the vehicle now. We do. We get the vehicle while Trent's talking with us. He tells you where it's at. No, his roommate came home. And so we get it then. And the roommate was totally cooperative. Like, I want nothing to do with this. Hey, small town fam, it's Yardley. I want to talk about Pros. Pros is the custom hair and skin beauty brand where you get on their website, answer a bunch of questions about where you live and how old you are, what kind of hair you have, what kind of hair you want to have. And then from millions of possible formulas, they create a formula just for you. So I'm lucky I have a lot of hair. Most days, my hair is the boss of me. So I need shampoo and conditioner that gets my hair to calm down a little bit. So I've been using Pros for a while and one of my favorite things about it is you can choose your scent. 
they have a review and refine tool which learns from my feedback and then adjusts the formula. Also, Pros is a certified B Corp. It's cruelty-free and it's the first and only carbon-neutral custom beauty brand. So it's not only better for you, it's better for the planet. So, small town fam, Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash town. That's right. You get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash town. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash town. Do it. Hey, folks. Detective Dave here. Let me tell you about Simply Safe, the home security system that I trust to keep my family safe. I depend on Simply Safe to provide me and my loved ones with 360 degree coverage of my property and valuables. I love the variety of monitoring sensors available with Simply Safe Home Security. You get a glass break sensor, which in my experience is one of the most effective tools of detecting a break in. In addition, Simply Safe offers motion sensors, entry sensors, sirens, and flood and fire detection. With Simply Safe Home Security, I have the flexibility to use keypads at multiple entries at my house. This option is especially important to me and my family. I can provide access to people I trust and limit having multiple keys outside of my control, all at the push of a button via the Simply Safe app. It comes with a variety of cameras for indoors and outdoors. And best of all, Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than $1 a day. It gives me peace of mind knowing I can leave the house, I can leave town, I can even leave the country, and I know my home is simply safe. The mobile app integration makes it so easy to make sure everything's in place in real time. I check it every day when I'm away from home. Simply Safe is the best. U.S. News and World Report named Simply Safe Best Home Security Systems 2024. And Newsweek ranked it Best Customer Service in Home Security. With Simply Safe, there are no contracts. And if you're not happy with the service or the product, they have a 60 day money back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind. We want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/slash smalltown. That's simplysafe.com/slash smalltown. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Hey, small town fam, it's Yardley. It's gonna be summer soon, so the potential for stinky pits is imminent. That's why I really love Lumi. I'm obsessed with their sweat control, cream deodorant. I think I've said this so many times, but honest to God, I never thought I'd use a cream deodorant because they're sloppy and gloppy and sticky and bleh. But Lumi isn't any of those things. It dries quickly, it's never sticky, and it doesn't leave any white streaks on my dark clothing. So all of those things are a win for me. If you're not familiar with Lumi, let me tell you a few things. Six years ago, an OBGYN invented her game-changing whole body deodorant, and now it has over 300,000 five-star reviews from people like me. Lumi is baking soda-free, paraben-free, and pH-balanced, so it's safe for your pits and your bits which means you can use it below the belt. They have a lovely variety of fresh, bright scents like clean tangerine, my favorite, lavender sage, or toasted coconut. 
And the secret to Lumi's success is it's formulated and powered by mandelic acid. That's how it stops odor before it starts. So, small town fam, Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, my fave, and two free products of your choice, like mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. And on top of that, as a special offer for listeners, new customers get 15% off all Lumi products with our exclusive code, which is small town. And if you combine the 15% off with the already discounted starter pack, that equals over 40% off the starter pack. So use code small town for 15% off your first purchase at lumideodorant.com. That's code small town at L-U-M-E deodorant.com. Do it. So on the initial call out, you get called to a fire. Yeah. I'm sure there were several fire crews that arrived to this. That's a massive fire. It was a massive fire. Are they calling you, you're going to investigate anyway, or are they seeing scenes of, you know, accelerant or... So we could see a V pattern. There was an accelerant. Okay. So we could see a V pattern where that fire started. And I mean, it was so pronounced. It's not always as pronounced as you would think, but in this case, it was so pronounced and there was nothing there that would start that fire naturally. What's the significance of a V pattern in an arson investigation? It shows you how that fire starts where it grows from. And if there had been accelerant of some sort, then you might see a splash pattern or like a float, like if it poured here and flowed out, you might see that. But in this case, it was just the V pattern and it was pretty distinctive because it was plastics that were melting and burning also. So it was suspicious from the get, right? And because I do fire and arson investigation, that's why they called me. So while I'm there is when I find out, hey, there's this white Jeep that's driving around, right? And we think it might be related. And then we find out that it belongs to Trent. And then we find out that Trent has arson history. And so it's just like one piece at a time. And then neighbors are bringing in surveillance video and it's showing this white Jeep. And he's saying he's at the super store and he's not at the superstore. He's at the local bar and he's at the local bar drinking and buying rounds for people in there because he just got his paycheck. He's a disabled veteran. What was Trent a veteran of? Was he a veteran of one of our Afghan wars or Iraqi wars? You know, I don't believe Trent ever saw any combat. He, I believe, was in the Air Force. And what he told me was lightning struck the building that he was in and knocked him down. And he ended up with a 90% disability, which he got paid 100% for. What does that mean, a 90% disability? Because... Trent seems fairly able-bodied, or am I misunderstanding what that term means, 90% disability? So when you file paperwork with the military regarding injuries, depending on what those injuries are, either physical or emotional distress, PTSD-type injuries, depending on the degree, you may not be able to continue your service. So they rate you based on how badly you're injured, either emotionally or physically. It doesn't mean that, you know, he has to be going around in a wheelchair. Just he was injured to a point where he can no longer serve. I see, I see. 
So Trent gets his paycheck once a month and his routine is to go blow some money. And so that's what he was doing. And during the course of all this, he decides, however one decides, I'm going to start some fires. Because he misses it. Well, it's just good fun. Ah. (laughs) And what was really interesting is when we got that video back, the surveillance video back, I was able to watch a subject walk up, light a fire, light a lighter, and then I could watch that fire grow and grow and grow. And then I see a white Jeep drive out of that driveway. So I pretty much had Trent dead to rights at that point for that fire. That fire being the one on the propane tank or the building? The school. Okay. Yeah, the one on the school. And then I also had him write a letter of apology to the students at the school. You did? Absolutely. And his first one was... I'm sorry that I had to pee and went behind your dumpster. So that was his first letter of apology. With no mention of the fire? No mention of the fire. He just stopped there because he really had to use the restroom. And so he decided to stop at the school and urinate behind the dumpster. Trent lived two blocks away. Give me a break. That's dragon piss. That's like straight fire. So (laughs) backing up a little bit. At first, Trent's giving you denials. No, I wasn't there. Okay, yes, I did do a U-turn in the school parking lot. And then you confront him with vehicle evidence of debris that was found at the scene. What's his response to that? That you're starting to confront him with some evidence? Well, he's going to hold on to his denials for as long as possible, right? So we talked to Trent for five and a half hours. And so he held on. And so when we would give him proof of something, he would be like, oh, okay, well, yeah, I must have touched it. I must have touched that. No, I didn't start the fire. And then it moved from not starting the fire to I urinated behind the dumpster. And then it moved from, well, when I urinated, I also smoked a cigarette. So I must have put the cigarette into the dumpster. But I'm pretty sure the cherry of the cigarette just floated off into the dumpster, which that didn't start it. So He's like, I'm very careful about how I take care of my cigarettes. I'm very careful about crushing out the cherry of my cigarette is what he said. And so he's denied, denied, denying it. And then basically I got mad at him is what happened. And I told him that he was disrespecting me and he got really upset. And he's like, well, I'm not disrespecting you. And that's when he finally said, okay, I did it. So I think he just needed like the mom touch. You know, like his mom got mad at him and he's like, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. So it started with cigarette and that he put it in this cardboard recycle thing. None of the cardboard in that recycle dumpster was burned. So we knew that that was a lie. And then, I mean, he just kept saying no. Once Trent finally said, okay, I did it, even though he tried to say it was an accident, okay, I did it. And he wrote his second letter of apology where he says, I stopped and I started a fire. And I'm sorry if it's caused you any problems, students of this school. And then we had to talk about the propane tank. And he's like, oh no, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. And eventually he just gave in and he said, yes, I started that fire too. And I think he just gave up. And did he say why? Did he say, I have this compulsion, I can't help myself? No, I did ask him about any other fires that he might have done. When was the first time that you were ever around a fire? And he talks about a friend of his starting a fire on accident with a cigarette when he was like 12 or 14 in a totally different town. So that was an indicator to me that I needed to contact that town and find out about their fires. And they had at least four during that time period either in places where Trent lived or places next door to where he lived. So Trent has been starting fires for a long time. 
What's the psychology of an arsonist? Sort of generally speaking, what is that compulsion? I don't really know because I'm not an arsonist. However, (laughs) I do ask them on a regular basis when I come across somebody who likes to start fires to talk to me about that. And like one man just told me, I like doodling fires. They just like the flame. They like watching it dance. They like that power. It's almost like they don't even have respect for it. And then sometimes you hear things about it being a sexual compulsion and you'll find ejaculate at fires sometimes. So I asked Trent about that. I asked him if it was sexual and he thought I was a creeper or something. So, (laughs) okay, sorry. Yeah, I don't really know. Like, I think it can be anything. My very first arson, the kid that did it, he started a lot of fires and he would come back to him to watch the firefighters. Every fire that I've ever gone to, to cover our fire department, do traffic control, it's pretty typical, especially in a residential neighborhood, middle of the night, middle of the day, whenever these fires happen, Fire trucks are loud, they show up, and people come out of their houses and they gather. I always took pictures of the crowd, snap a few pictures of the crowd just to have it, because I've heard this compulsion that they want to watch. They want to see their handiwork. This is their creation, and they want to admire it. The arsonists. The arsonist. Well, they've caused a lot of people to do stuff, right? That first guy. This is somebody other than Trent? Yeah, he started a fire and it was a huge fire in a business. And as I was out investigating with the fire department, this kid walks up and I knew he had a history of starting fires. And it was interesting because when he walked up and engaged us in conversation, he's like, what's going on? Well, there was a fire. And so we're just talking back and forth. And he said, I started the fire and kept talking. He didn't even know that he had admitted it, right? Fortunately, I just stood there and I didn't respond at the time like, oh, he started the fire, he started the fire. But I kind of looked at the firefighter next to me and he's looking at me like, oh my gosh, he just said that? Like, yep. Yeah. So how far into the interview do you tell Trent, we have video of you starting the fire? And also my other question is, isn't it quite hard to start a fire that's hot enough that would burn a whole building down? My impression is that It's actually not that easy, but I mean, I don't know anything about that, so. Right, so if you looked at this building that caught on fire, you'd be like, I don't even know how he did it. But the fire goes up into the eaves, right? And so the fire is burning the roof and the attic space and all those trusses and burning down in. And so you have all that fire damage and then you put all these thousands and thousands of gallons of water on it and then you have all that water damage also. So it ends up being a total loss. I see. What time of year was this? Summer. It's summertime. So we have dry summers here. It's not unheard of that we have 45, 50 days, no rain. We have warm summers here sometimes too. So depending on the weather, you know, it's a healthy fire season in our forests and our woodlands. But buildings dry out, too. Mm -hmm. It works even better if you knock out all the windows, (laughs) which I've done. When you started a fire? No, I was responding to a fire. We told this story with a bunch of firefighters, but they were upset with my efforts to ventilate the fire. Ventilate. (laughs) Somebody had said that there was a woman inside the house that was burning. So Dave, of course, being first on scene, not wanting to not do anything, busts inside the house. There's smoke everywhere. He can't find a woman, but he's like, well, shit, I should knock out the windows to try to get more air. Right, I'm going to give her air. But of course, it feeds the fire. (laughs) The good news is there was nobody actually in the house. She was already next door. Right, so that airspace that you're talking about, right, that air, when it goes up into those vents, if there's no fire blocks, 
which that's how they build houses now, right? With fire blocks like in apartments, it can't run the entire attic anymore. It can't run the entire space. So it wouldn't involve unit one, unit two, unit three, because it has those fire blocks. But I don't think that this school, based on its age, had those fire blocks. So it's just like... Right. Had free reign. Mm -hmm. Did Trent go to court? He did not. He took a plea and he's spending some time in prison, finally, for starting fires. Oh, excellent. When he was setting fires when he was younger, did he get any time? No, they never proved that it was him when he was younger. But just within a year of these fires, he had been convicted of two or three fires in rural barns. And he was given probation instead of putting them away. Did he get arson charges or reckless burning? I believe that they were arson because they were buildings, farm buildings. That seems legit. And you get probation? Mm -hmm. If it's your first foray into the system as an adult, I mean, you see it all the time. Hey, if your client pleads to these charges, we'll give him three years or five years of probation and tell him not to do that anymore. So... You get a light slap on the wrist the first time around, and then your second time around, you get the full meal deal. So in this case, he's got an arson of a school, and then he's got an arson that could have been really bad at the uh, propane tank. I mean, if you'd injured somebody in the course of that, he'd have gone away for a lot longer, I'm sure. But arson carries a pretty decent sentence here in our state. Arson one. Okay, arson one implies... There's more than one type of arson charge, I'm guessing, yes? Yes. And Dave, you mentioned a few minutes ago reckless burning. What's the difference between the two? Right. So an arson one would involve a dwelling, someplace where somebody normally lives, or a protected place like a school or a church, something like that where people are normally going to be. But the shed in the backyard is a building, so that would be an arson too. And if they burned the tree in the front yard, that would be a reckless burn. And what about a barn? It might have animals in it. Is that arson one or arson two? I'm going to say arson two. But, you know, when you say animals, I'm thinking domestic animals are really important to us, right? And so I would have to look that one up or call my prosecutor. (laughs) Gray area. Now, I've heard that people who start fires can't help themselves, arsonists, that is, that it's a compulsion for them, often uncontrollable. Right. People who intentionally start fires, they don't just decide one day, I'm going to start one fire and then never do it again or haven't done it in the past. And so when you're investigating somebody who does arson fires, we need to look into their past, right? Because they are a danger to us. They will start more fires. They have been starting fires and they just haven't gotten caught. And they will start more fires in the future. So for Trent to go out and start fires rurally in barns, that should have been a big indicator to us that he is a danger to our community, right? And probation isn't good enough. That's not going to stop. And clearly it didn't, right? Because he started these other fires. So now hopefully he's on the radar when he gets out because I think he'll continue to start fires even when he gets out. Wow. Prison's not going to stop him from starting fires. Yeah, we get those alerts, Department of Corrections, DOC, when they do releases. Particular offenders, based on their charges, will generate a flag or an alert to whatever jurisdiction that person's moving to once they get out of prison. So you'll get an alert like arsonist. It gives a brief summary of the crimes that they got convicted for and... Basically, it's if you got fires that start popping up after this guy's release, you might want to go chat with him first. I think it's largely like um, you talk about sex offenders, and I'm going to throw arsonists 
in the same kind of pool, that there's this compulsion that you cannot control. And that as this compulsion grows inside you, you're a little more bold each time you do something and you get away with it. And it takes a little more to feed that compulsion in you and get you off right. to satisfy you. And I think that he was on the path, especially that night. I mean, what are we talking here in a couple hours? We've got these three different incidents. Correct. Not even a couple hours. And he wasn't done that night, but for seeing a police officer and hooking a UA and going home. Right. Trent wasn't done that night, but for there was too many people out there, right? And one of the things that we said to him was, thank you for doing it at night, right? Thank you for not hurting any kids. What does he respond? You're welcome. He doesn't admit that he started the fire. Thank you for doing it at nighttime. You're welcome. Yeah, I would never hurt anybody. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. When you say, like, get off, it's not necessarily sexual, but there is that thrill inside, like that adrenaline dump of, look at my handiwork. Right, like the public building wasn't enough. Now I'm going to go get close to a residence and possibly take out a dwelling where people are inside. Right. If you think about that propane tank, I don't think that he was like, I think I'm going to find a propane tank and I'm going to set it on fire. I think it was, I came around the corner. Oh my gosh, there's this gift in front of me of a propane tank and I can take advantage of it. Like a big shining light right on the propane tank. Right. Go over there. Set that thing on fire. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know anything about his background growing up or anything like that that would... I don't know that anything could point to a compulsion like that, but I'm just curious. I don't. I do know that Trent's father's business burnt to the ground. Oh. And Trent lived there. I don't know what was happening at home. I don't know what, I don't know. What do you do the next day after a night like that? I write reports and write reports and write reports. The reports on him were about 364 pages. There was a lot of reports. I didn't write them all. I just wrote most of them. <laughs> That's incredible. And can you say how much time he got in prison? So he got 20 years. Okay. These aren't mandatory minimums, so they would have calculated his earliest release date based on projection of good time. So Trent got sentenced to 20, but that's truncated down based on their projections to it'd be about 15 years. Yes. As long as he doesn't start any fires in prison, right? Sure. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Don, you're quite versatile and you work for a small town agency, but you do computer forensics. Mm -hmm. You do child abuse, mm -hmm. sex abuse, mm -hmm. and you're also an arson investigator. Fire and arson investigator. I was the only one at our department. Towards the end, I was the only one at the police department and fire department who had been to the National Fire Academy and actually gone through that training there. So whenever there was a fire, I got a call. 
And how did you get interested in becoming a fire investigator? Like, Don, it's going to be you. I married a firefighter. <laughs> right. That was one of my marriages. <laughs> <laughs> I thought in your childhood you were probably burning down barns. <laughs> yeah, the dance floor. I was burning down the dance floor. <laughs> That's right, the yeah. dance floor. Yeah, I was hanging out with firefighters, and I thought it was interesting. And one of the very first fires that I was ever around was a fire in our community in a church, in a historic church that a man set. It was just fascinating to me. And then the one where the kid said, kid, he was an adult, but he said, I started the fire. I was like, dude, I can do this investigation. I mean, they tell you they did it, right? (laughs) So (laughs) they're hard investigations to do, right? It's like you have to prove what didn't start it to get to what did start it. Right. That's interesting. Also, when you're looking for evidence, a lot of your evidence is destroyed by simply putting the fire out. That's a lot of water and that's debris falling from the roof and the ceiling of these buildings. You have to search for your evidence. It's difficult. Yeah, we call it a dig. You have to do a dig and you're taking the layers off, like peeling an onion piece by piece until you can get to the bottom. And then when you get to the bottom, you're not even done then. You have to sweep and you can see the patterns if you have accelerants, things like that. It's interesting and not easy. Is that one of the things you like about it, that it's not easy? I think so. And that not everybody does it, so it's kind of unique. I'm not interested in like investigating car fires and stuff like that. The house fires where people are involved, that's more interesting to me. Right. And how did you get into the computer forensics? I got into computer forensics because... It got to a point, right, where every crime that we dealt with had a computer. And so I was constantly going over to a neighboring jurisdiction and talking to somebody there to help me with the computer forensics. So then I did a proposal to our agency, and I was like, we need to do this, and I'm willing to try it. And I got to tell you, computers are not my favorite. I don't really like them that much, but I like the forensic part. And then I like talking to the suspects, right, afterwards. To say, listen, I've gotten into what you think is your secret lockbox. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I ended up going to a place called IASIS, which means the International Association of Computer Investigative Specialists. So I did a bunch of training in Florida, and I went to the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center for the feds and did training down there and stuff. Amazing to be so multidisciplined. Well, when you work in a smaller agency, you don't get the luxury of being able to do one thing, right? You have to wear a bunch of hats. Yeah, we talk about that. We talk about how many hats you all have to wear, how many fewer resources are available to you, but how you are expected to present the same excellent work product that a big city is with many more resources available to them. Mm-hmm. It's a job well done. Were you on SWAT too? I mean, what else? You're holding out on us. I know. Are you a forensic diver also? Mm-hmm. Like, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> So now what I'm currently doing right now, although I'm retired... I'm a firearms instructor, so I teach new cops how to shoot guns, and then I also teach sexual assault investigations. And I kind of want to toot our own horn. When you instruct at the academy, you said that you use some of our podcast episodes. I do. I do. It's really flattering. Yeah. So I teach, in fact, I just taught yesterday an eight-hour class on sexual assault investigations, and one of the things that I think it's important for the young cops to know is that cops can do bad things also, right? And so I bring up the sociopath and the whistleblower. And we talk about that. And we talk about that and other police officers like Daniel Holtzclaw. Who's that? Holtzclaw, another cop from a different state. And he was doing 
very similar stuff that the two officers that we talked about in Sociopath and the Whistleblower. He's doing the same exact stuff. Again, he's got credibility because he's a cop, but he's targeting the same type of individuals that our officers in Sociopath and the Whistleblower. Same people who are on the fringes. Right. When we talk about the hyper-credibility that police officers hold, right? And that they choose victims that appear to lack in credibility in that balance that's so out of balance. So I think it's important for them to realize that they can't put a face to a sex offender. It can be anyone. Right. And Dave, who investigated sex crimes and child abuse for over six years, always said one of the superpowers that sex offenders had was they blended in. Oh, absolutely. That was their thing. Of course, they didn't want to be noticed. Like, you didn't ever pick them out. Yeah. We tend to protect our children and investigate our children in child abuse. We tend to dismiss our adult victims of sex abuse, right? We tend to dismiss it. When I'm teaching about sexual assault, we're talking about late adolescent and adults, and we're talking about believing them. And When I say that, I don't mean that if somebody comes in, you just believe them no matter what they say, right? But it's very easy to tell them nobody deserves to be sexually assaulted and to listen to what their experience was and let the evidence speak for itself, right? Right. Yeah, that's important to me. Yes, very, indeed. Well, thank you so much. You are a remarkable human. Great to have you. Thank you. Thank you, Don. Thank you. Thank you. That was great. Small Town Dicks is produced by Gary Scott and Yardley Smith and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. This episode was edited by Soren Bajan, Gary Scott, and me, Yardley Smith. Our associate producers are Aaron Gaynor and The Real Nick Smitty. Our music is composed by John Forrest. Our editors extraordinaire are Logan Heftel and Soren Bajan. And our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, visit us on our website at smalltowndicks.com. And join the Small Town fam by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at smalltowndicks. We love hearing from you. And if you support us on Patreon, your subscription will give you access to exclusive content and merchandise that isn't available anywhere else. Go to patreon.com slash smalltowndickspodcast. That's right. Your subscription also makes it possible for us to keep going to small towns across the country in search of the finest, rare, true crime cases told, as always, by the detectives who investigated them. So thanks for listening, small town fam. Nobody's better than you.